It was a busy weekend in the world of sports, so it feels like there's a lot to recap, which is honestly the least interesting thing that anybody who's ever hosted a sports radio show or podcast has ever said. Busy weekend. We got a lot to get to today, so strap in. We got a good, we got a fun one planned for you. Uh, it would actually be more interesting, I feel like, if I came on here and said, you know what? Uh, a lot happened. I'm not really interested in much of it, so I got like two things prepared. I'll just wing the rest of it, and we'll see where it goes. Uh, but... Actually, this is the one time where it feels apt to say, no, there was a lot going on. So there is a lot to talk about in the NBA. The NBA has become, it's not only become, it's always been, but it's been more amplified over the past 15 years or so. A league that is simply, how many stars can you accrue on one team? And the more of those that you can get on one roster, the better chances you have of winning a championship, which feels like it could apply to all sports, but unlike baseball or the NFL, where it doesn't always work out, in the NBA, when you accrue talent, when you put multiple superstars on the team, you are automatically becoming one of the title contenders in the league. And almost every single year, the team who ends up winning it all is one of those teams. Not to say that you're guaranteed a spot in the conference finals, like it's going to be the two best teams in the conference finals, the two best teams in the NBA finals who just have the most superstars. It doesn't always work out like that. But at the end of the year, the team who ends up winning it all almost always is one of those teams that has somehow managed to build a quote-unquote super team. And there are quite a few of them in the NBA right now. And... I don't think any of them, with the exception of the Los Angeles Clippers, who at this point you have to think are the fourth best team, just in terms of their chances of making it to the finals, left in the NBA playoffs. And in a sport where accruing talent, accruing stars, has become the way to win championships, over the weekend we saw two teams get eliminated from the playoffs because one of their star players was simply unplayable. But because they were a star player, they continued to play in the game. They continued to cost their team and ultimately led to the end of their season. The first one that seems the most flagrant and it seems uh, that was the most recent was last night, the Hawks beating the Sixers, Game 7 of the Eastern Conference Semis. The Atlanta Hawks. The Atlanta Hawks are going to the Eastern Conference Finals, which is worthy of its own discussion, but that's not the one I want to have right now because everybody's thoughts are with the 76ers. Yes, the process is over. They are going to have to rip up that plan and start anew. Joel Embiid is not going anywhere. They're still going to continue to build around him because, as we saw this season... He was one of the top two or three players in the NBA and his second in MVP voting was fantastic again in this series versus Atlanta, averaged 28 and 10, averaged 34 at home in the series against Atlanta last night. Wasn't great. Uh, the eight turnovers, one of them proved to be incredibly costly. They're at the end of the game, but he's still one of the top players in the NBA and they're going to continue to build around him. The other guy though, Ben Simmons, right? He was the other product of the process. He is going to be the GOAT for this season, for that series, and I'm just not sure if we're ever going to see him play in a Sixers uniform again. 
despite all of the physical strengths and the, the skills that he possesses that makes him such an interesting and in some regards elite player in this league, I don't know if there's, there's ever been an elite, a player of his stature to have such a glaring weakness in his game at such an important aspect of the game. And it's a pretty simple one. He can't shoot. He can't shoot the ball. Ben Simmons averaged 12 points in this postseason. He shot 34% from the free throw line. He is now the worst postseason free throw shooter of all time. And in the fourth quarter of these games against Atlanta, he was virtually invisible. Zero shots in the fourth quarter last night. Three shots. Three shots in the fourth quarter against Atlanta in this series. That's seven games where Ben Simmons took three shots in the fourth. And it's very, very obviously a confidence issue. Like at some point when you have everything, except for one thing, which is basically the most simple way to describe Ben Simmons' game. He is so good at all these different things. He is 6'11". He can handle the ball. He is a great passer. He's obviously an elite rebounder for his position. He is virtually unstoppable in the open court. And he is one of the top defenders in the NBA. I mean, he was an obvious choice for first team all defense this year. He's got everything going for him except for one thing. And for virtually any other player that you could describe that way, and I don't know how many of them are currently in the NBA, but we've certainly seen them before, where you've got X, Y, Z, but you just don't have that one missing piece. We always convince ourselves that this team's going to be able to add that. He'll be able to add that to his repertoire, or at the very least, be able to get better at it to the point at which he will be unstoppable. To the point at which there won't be any other conversations to have about him. He only had one weakness well, now he's turned that weakness into not necessarily a strength, but something that's no longer a liability, and now you can't do anything about him. Now you can't stop him. With Ben Simmons, it does not seem like that's ever going to be the case. He's a 14% three-point shooter, and it's not just the fact that he can't shoot the ball, it's that he won't shoot the ball, and that is almost worse. Because it seems crazy to think that you've got a guy shooting below 15% from three in his career, that you feel like you need to see him take a few shots, but he won't because he knows he can't. So it's not just the lack of skill, it's the lack of confidence. And you can't have that for one of your superstar players. This is the fourth straight year where the 76ers looked like one of the players in the Eastern Conference, and it is the fourth straight year that they failed to make it to the Eastern Conference Finals in a season where it seemed like everything was setting up for them where it seemed like with the Nets going down the night before, you're playing the Atlanta Hawks, the Atlanta Hawks at home in game seven of the Eastern Conference semis, and you can't get the job done. And it's tough to put it all on one player, but it's certainly the way it feels like right now. After the game, the head coach of the Sixers, Doc Rivers, was asked if he thinks Ben Simmons can still be a starting point guard for a championship team. This is what that sounded like. Doc, you think Ben Simmons can, can still be a point guard for, for a championship team like the one you guys want to become? Yeah, David, I don't know that question or the answer to that right now. Um, you know, so I don't know the answer to that. 
So the answer to that question that Doc Rivers was seemingly unable to answer is no, is no. Not this version of Ben Simmons. And, and honestly, it's, it reminds me of times when Bill Self has been asked what they're doing to fix a guy's jumper. And he always says, you know, that's not going to be our job to fix. That'll get fixed at the next level. Somebody else at the NBA level is going to be able to do that. That's how it feels with Ben Simmons is if that jumper is ever going to be fixed, it's not going to happen in Philadelphia. When's the last time Philadelphia tried to fix a player's jumper? It was Markel Fulton. They ruined the kid. They ruined him. And he's actually been able to, to find some semblance of a career now with Orlando. But you're not doing that with Ben Simmons. And at this point, the trade value is virtually gone. And it's gone if you play him. It's gone if you don't. Because you can harp on Doc Rivers and his unwillingness to pull Ben Simmons from the game. But it makes sense because of what we said earlier that the NBA has always been about accruing as much talent as you possibly can and putting those guys on the floor together. There's not much precedent for having an elite level player and in the biggest moment of the season, taking him off. And just because there's not precedent doesn't mean it's not the right thing to do. Like in hindsight, we can all look at it and say, you should have taken him out of the game because he couldn't do anything for you. But at that point, it's almost an organizational decision to say, we've got this guy we're building around. He's a pillar of our organization and you're going to bench him in the most pivotal moment of the season. It's tough to do, but it's probably the right thing to do. And Doc Rivers is not the only coach who's having to deal with that. Because Quinn Snyder, formerly, I mean, at one point in my life, Quinn Snyder was probably my most hated sports figure when he was the coach for Missouri back in the 90s. I don't think there was anybody that I hated more than Quinn Snyder. And then he sort of disappeared from my conscious and reappeared as an assistant coach and now the head coach of the Utah Jazz. And the Jazz, much like the Sixers, saw their season come to an end on Friday night in large part because of their unwillingness to bench one of their star players. In this case, it was Rudy Gobert, who, by the way, just capped off one of the most impressive individual regular seasons in terms of defense. That's why he was the defensive player of the year. That's why he's one of the guys that you're willing to build around. He might get a Supermax extension at the end of this year during the offseason. But in that game, on Friday, Game 7, against the Los Angeles Clippers, Rudy Gobert was unplayable because the Clippers decided to go with Terrence Mann, 6'5", 215, who finished the game with 39 points, who finished the game going 15 of 21 from the field. Rudy Gobert couldn't guard him. And just like Doc Rivers couldn't take one of his star players out of the game, Quinn Snyder couldn't take Rudy Gobert out of the game. Why? Because he's one of the guys that you as an organization decided we are going to build around. And taking him out of the game would have accomplished two things. First off, it may, have, it may have gotten you the win. You were up by 20 points at halftime. You were up by 20 points at halftime. You ended up losing that game by 12 because of your unwillingness to adjust. It's a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. 
Because if, if we know that the outcome is going to be a loss no matter what, which we don't, but if, we, if you operate from that assumption that you're going to lose the game no matter what, then the coach has no way to win. You leave Gobert in, you weren't willing to adjust. You take him out of the game, what were you thinking? You took out one of your best players in the biggest moment of the season, and now the season's over. And now what does that guy feel about his future with this organization? An organization that probably doesn't value him that much. There's no way to win. There's no way to win. The only way to win is for us to sit here today and say that these coaches are idiots because they wouldn't take these players out of the game when it was obvious that these players were costing them a chance at winning and continuing their season. That's the only way to win because you can't prove it wrong. You can't prove it wrong if I said, if you took Rudy Gobert out of the game, Quinn Snyder, you're going to the Western Conference Finals. You can't prove it wrong that if I say, Doc Rivers, if you take Ben Simmons out of that game, you're going to the Eastern Conference Finals. You cannot prove that point wrong. Because it's as easy as possible to look at it and boil it down to poor coaching decisions and coaches unwilling to do the difficult thing. Unwilling to do the right thing. But just because it's the right thing doesn't make it even remotely possible to do. Because at no point in the history of basketball have we seen coaches be willing to do that. You're one of our best, you're not just one of our best players, you're a superstar. We're a title contending team in large part because of you. Coming into the postseason, if I said, why do you like the Sixers so much? How long is it going to take you to get to Ben Simmons? If I asked you, why is everybody so high on the Jazz coming into this postseason? How long is it going to take you to mention Rudy Gobert's name? Not long. Those were two of the superstars that made those teams title contenders. Yet, here we are sitting on a Monday and those two superstars playing in games, game sevens, cost their teams a chance at going on to the conference finals. I'm Nick Schwartz, riding solo today. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk. We got some U.S. Open stuff to get to as well. You'll also hear from David Lesky of Baseball Prospectus coming up here in a bit. The Royals won a series against a good baseball team, so we've definitely got something to talk about there. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk. Support for today's episode comes from Manscaped. Father's Day is just around the corner, and you probably need a gift for a hairy dad. Make your dad proud this year and get him and yourself the Manscaped Lawnmower 4.0 and Ultra Smooth Package. You know what they say, like father, like son. The brand new Lawnmower 4.0 and Ultra Smooth Package is perfect for you and the dad in your life to complete your grooming game. Get 20% off plus free shipping with the code RCST at manscaped.com. Manscaped is the only men's brand dedicated to below-the-waist grooming, and the brand-new shaving tools just dropped right in time for Father's Day. The Lawnmower 4.0 trimmer is now available in USA and Canada. What makes this waterproof trimmer different from all other trimmers? The 7,000 RPM trimmer features skin-safe technology to keep your balls in check and has helped reduce manscaping accidents around the world. Stop imagining your dad has it covered because guess what? He probably doesn't. Get 20% off plus free shipping with the code RCST at manscaped.com. This is the perfect package for you and your dad's perfect package. Get 20% off plus free shipping with the code RCST at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com when you use the code RCST. It's dad bod season. Time to get smooth. Some good and some bad coming from the Royals this past weekend. The good that they won a series against a good team beating the Red Sox two out of three. The bad is that Mondesi who once again returned to the Major League lineup, smashed a home run on Friday. That's not bad, but 
he is now back on the IL with an oblique strain. That part is bad. And in our CST form, we start with the bad. David Lesky, Royals Review, inside the Crown Substack with us now on the show. If there is a, a novel or a book being written about the Adalberto Mondesi saga in Kansas City, what's the title of this chapter, David? I, I believe it's Hurt dot 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 again. Sub, subtitle, this time it's a different oblique. <laughs> how many oblique? How many different obliques can you strain at one time? Um, I see. Here's the, I don't know because I don't I don't I don't have an oblique. Okay, I, I, that, that's that's the beauty of of you know being me and you apparently and all this. We we don't have these muscles, so we can't strain them, and that's why that's why Billy Butler never missed any time with a muscle strain. He just didn't didn't have it. Right. Um, it, yeah, it's it's really it's very heady, but yeah, it, that, this is disappointing because, I mean, you'd almost I don't know maybe maybe it's, maybe it's better that it's a different oblique, <laughs> but you almost feel like well if he at least re-injured the one maybe you can say he didn't come he he came back a little quicker than expected and that's that kind of quiets down some people who say he's not very tough I don't know I I, I have a hard time. I have a hard time listening to people complain about Alberto Montesi's Alberto Montesi's toughness when they probably stop eating when they bite their lip. Um, and you know that's not to not to bash anybody who who has these feelings. I just I just don't I don't think this is a toughness issue. I think this is a guy who his muscles are really tightly wound, and I think they got to figure something out with that. He he won't he's not the first, and he won't be the last to have injury issues with 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 these muscles, but. Um, it's it's torpedoed what in in a very small sample ten games spread out over got a month right almost um, it looks like it could be the type of breakout season we've been waiting for but we just won't really get to see it because who knows how long he's going to be out this time the first time he was out from roughly opening day it was a couple of days before till late May right so that that's a that's a, that's a long time and. I don't know. Now, now you, you go by that exact timeline and that puts him out until mid August. Um, it's not great. It's, it, it's just a continuation of, of a very frustrating season for modesty and for the Royals. And for the record about two weeks ago, I did bite my lip very bad. I didn't stop eating though. I kept eating that chicken breast and proceeded you powered through. Yeah. But I wouldn't suggest that for anybody else because I proceeded to bite my lip another five times across the course of that meal, which just made the problem worse. So that's what I would tell people who think he's not tough enough is you don't want to play through those injuries because all it's going to do is make you worse off in the long run, just like it did for me. That's true. Yeah. And look, you're at work right now, but I, I bet if you ran your tongue over that, you would still feel a little bump. Uh-huh. It's still there. A little scar tissue. Yeah. But that's just like I, a, that's a war wound, right? That's what I get to show off and say, see, this is why, this is a testament to my toughness and a lesson for you to maybe learn from. Absolutely. I, I, I commend you. And look, I, I, I think that more people need to be like you. Thank you. That's, that's really what we're getting <laughs> at here. David Lesky with us on our CST. You know, it's funny. The Royals score, I think it was 13 runs in that three-game series against the Red Sox. You win the series, yet as you noted, in your Substack this morning, you go five of 34 with runners in scoring position. So we can talk about all the reasons why the Royals ended up winning that series, but it's hard for me to, to not go back to 
what we've talked about so many times and that this Royals offense seems to be one of extremes. They live on both ends of the spectrum, and I'm just curious as to your thoughts. Do you think there is going to be some change? Can this offense find some middle ground, or will it just be a unit that lives on opposite ends of the spectrum all season long? Well, it's weird because, yes, 5 for 34 with runners in scoring position, but they had 34 at-bats with runners in scoring position in three <laughs> games. Yeah. I mean, that, that's a lot, right? <laughs> that's a pretty pretty good little chunk of, of time with, with a runner on second or and or third. Um, the problem, we've talked about this a little bit, the problem is that when you have a team that doesn't walk and that doesn't hit home runs, they are going to be prone to pretty wild swings, I think. And, and part of it is that they also take wild swings a lot of the plate, which it, it just, it, it's hard to get into a groove offensively. If you don't do the walking and the homering thing very well. And they just don't, they, they, they Salvador Perez has 18 home runs. That's, I don't know, fourth in the league. I can't remember where it is. It's just, Hey, top ten, <laughs> but top eight, I think. I can't remember the exact the exact ranking, but um, they've got him. They've got uh, Carlos Santana, who hasn't really done much lately, but he's got eleven, I think. You know, Jorge Soler has five, six. I can't remember what it is. Five or six doesn't matter. It's not enough. They, they just aren't hitting the ball out of the ballpark. And outside of Carlos Santana and Jorge Soler in June, they're not walking much. And Nicky Lopez, forgot about Nicky Lopez, but he has zero power to speak of. Um, it, it just, it lends itself to an offense that can struggle. And, and on top of that, especially with Mondesi out again, and Ben Intendi out, they just don't have a lot of depth in their lineup. And so you can see a guy like Whit Merrifield, who's been playing pretty well for the last, oh, three weeks or so. Um, he struggled through May, but Junie has been much better. Um, Carlos Santana, even with his struggles, he's getting on base. Um, Salvador Perez has obviously been really good, but then you get past those three with Benintendi and Montesi both out, and it's a lot of, well, who knows what they'll do today. Jorge Soler has been better in June, but still not good. Hunter Dozier had three hits yesterday, which was his second three-hit day of the month, but he has 11 hits this month. <laughs> like, like it, So two three-hit games and then five other hits. It's June 21st. Right? Yeah, June 21st. Like, it, there's, there's just it's hard, to, it's hard to predict any kind of success until you get Whit Merrifield on second base, and if Santana or Perez don't get him in, who knows what's going to happen? You know, <laughs> it's, it's just... They're suffering from a lot of that. They're suffering from, like I said, just a really an offense that you can't just count on day in and day out because they don't do things that do tend to repeat very well. And that's just what they are. But again, 34 at bats, runners in scoring position says they were getting on base. At some point, it's going to turn around. And maybe that started yesterday. They went four for 16, which isn't great. But that means four of the five hits came in one game. Um, that means they were also one for 18 in the previous two games. Not great, including the one The one was Alberto Mondesi's monster home run on Friday night. Um, but, you know, maybe maybe the tide turned. Maybe that Dyson at bat that was just so much fun to watch yesterday, maybe that turned the tide a little bit and, and, and they'll, they'll get some hits to fall in. I, I don't know, but it's... It's a problem. It's an inefficient offense, and you need more efficiency. Now they're going to Yankee Stadium, so maybe maybe some of those high fly balls will just clear the wall, and they'll hit a bunch of solo home runs, and that'll help. But uh, they need to figure out a way to be more effective when they get guys on in scoring position. That's that's just the, the simplest fact. At the beginning of that answer, you you brought up 
Mondesi, especially with him being out again, it sort of amplifies the issues. And I know you're not saying this, but it does seem like like that that portion of this is not just a footnote, right? Because if we go back to the beginning of the year and we're talking about expectations for the offense, what's going to be realistic, what happens, you know, best case scenario, worst case scenario, Mondesi's season, especially after the really strong spring training, was sort of tied into all of those answers, right? Like, how good can this offense be if Mondesi becomes that sort of offensive pillar that you're looking for him to become? So when we go over everything that you just said and all the offensive woes, and you can get into the individual players, whether it's Hunter Dozier or Jorge Soler, like, how often do you find yourself just sort of taking a step back and and sort of almost being able to end every discussion with, well, if Mondesi were healthy, we'd probably be having a different conversation right now. Oh, I mean, everything is that way. And it's not just offensively, defensively too, because we've seen it. When you get Mondesi in the lineup at short and Lopez at second and Merrifield in left or right, the defense is considerably better. And and it's just everything is better with Mondesi on the field. And, you know, I, I think back to the, the lineup discussion, we thought, hey, this team can go seven deep. And the seven were Merrifield, Santana, and Salvi. And then it was Benintendi, Mondesi, Soler, and Dozier. Well, Benintendi's been pretty good, but he's hurt. Mondesi's been phenomenal when he's on the field, but he's played, what are they, 30? He's played 10 out of 70 games. Um, it's not good. Soler has pretty much never been good. Dozier has never been good this season. So four sevenths of that, of that seven that we thought, Hey, this lineup could be pretty deep has either been hurt lately or bad. Uh, you, you can't survive that. We talked early in the season. It is, if they suffered an injury or ineffectiveness to one, maybe two of those guys, they can piece it together, but it's four players right now it's they just don't have the offensive depth to cover that and look if you ask that question this time next year maybe they do have the offensive depth nick prado bobby witt jr mj melendez has played well um manuel rivera is a guy who i think they might want to take a look at pretty soon at and then triple a ryan o'hearn who's back uh, or will be back once they make the modesty move official he's been bonkers in triple a right now but he's been terrible in the majors, so I don't know. Maybe maybe he can carry that hot streak over. But they they just they don't have a lot of guys who you can say, okay, look, I know he's not Mondesi, but we're going to bring this guy up, and and he's he's going to be eighty percent of, of that, or eighty percent of Benintendi, or eighty percent of Dozier, or whatever it is. They don't have those guys right now, and they're they're working their way through the system, but they're just not there yet. And they and no, I don't I don't know how many teams can suffer four of their key lineup guys being either out or bad and still be good, which I don't know. Is there blame to go there? Is there blame that the depth wasn't built? I don't know. Maybe, but I think that's just the reality of the Royal situation right now. David Lesky with us here on rock Chuck sports talk on Friday. We saw them go with Kyle Zimmer as an opener. First time we've seen that this season, just given the inconsistencies and the struggles that we've seen from the starting rotation, do you think that's something that they could go to more often? I think they should. Um, not entirely sure they will. I think that, you know, it worked. And that's, that sometimes that's the biggest thing. You can, you can do something and know it's 100% right and have it blow up on you and you never want to do it again. Um, but I, I think the fact that it worked out really well for them on Friday night will help. 
But, I mean, if you look at this rotation, outside of Mike Miner, who do you trust to go even six on a given night? You know, Brad Keller looked like he was turning things around. And then his last three starts, he's given up five or more runs in all three of them. And he's thrown more than five innings once, and it was five and a third. So it's not like not like he's been great lately. Uh, Brady Singer, who knows, with his shoulder, on top of the fact that it's kind of a who knows before the shoulder. Chris Bubich hasn't been very good. Jackson Coar obviously, um, just completely struggled in his first two starts. And it looked okay on, uh, on Saturday. I thought he looked pretty decent actually out of the bullpen. Um, you know, who, who do you trust? And, and so I think you look at guys like Kyle Zimmer who did it on Friday and Josh Dahlmont who did it in the minors a couple of years ago when they were, when they were working on that in Omaha, I think those two guys are, are pitchers you can look at to say, Hey, we're, we want you to get, get the first three to six batters of the game. And then we're going to bring in Chris Bubich or Coar or honestly, Keller is a guy they should look at. I think <laughs> who needs an opener? Danny Duffy when he comes back. Now, when he comes back, he's probably going to be on a on a pitch count because I don't I don't think they're going to send him on a rehab assignment for some reason. Um, seems weird to me, but whatever. He's a guy who could probably benefit from an opener. I I, I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, I think they've got a couple a couple good candidates for openers, and most of the rotation is a good candidate to need an opener. So I hope they do it more. I think I think they should. What is the timetable right now for Danny Duffy's return? Well, it kind of sounds like he's going to be back this week. <laughs> it, 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 it's crazy. He pitched on May 12th. Um, his next start got pushed back, and then ultimately he went on the injured list and had that weird Zoom conference, which they later explained, oh, that would have been a reporter scrum, but also it just seemed weird the way they called that. Um, and he said, oh, I'm not, I'm not hurt that bad. It's just going to be a month or so. Well, it's June 21st, which is more than a month. Um, he's thrown some live batting practices, which is good. He says he feels good. I figured, hey, he's going to make a starter to an Omaha and come back and be ready to throw five innings. And he might come back to the big leagues without a rehab stint, which seems like a mistake to me, especially in the year there's six games under 500 at this point. But um, they could use him. The way he was pitching before he got hurt, he was – one of the best starters in the American league and, and with Coar's struggles and Bubich's struggles, they, they could use a, a veteran in that rotation. Um, I wouldn't be surprised. I don't, I don't know if we'll see him in New York. I wouldn't be surprised if we see him in Texas. I, I think it's a mistake, but I wouldn't be surprised by it. Yeah. I don't think it's any surprise at this point. I mean, it, it seems unlikely that the Royals are going to settle into a starting rotation and like that. You'd always love for that to be the case, but just based off how fluid that's been, I, I don't know how many people are going to be holding their breath for that. You just mentioned Jackson Coar. Uh, we saw him out of the bullpen for the first time this weekend. What did you think about that? Obviously had some more success than he had in his first two starts, which went a combined two innings. We joked last week. Probably wouldn't be fair to refer to him as uh, an innings eater. But what did you think of him? And do you feel any certain way about how he should be handled moving forward? Yeah, I mean, I thought he looked pretty good. Um, his first, I don't know, six, seven pitches on Saturday, it looked like the same guy who couldn't do anything right as a starter. Um, but then he sort of settled down, and his defense helped him quite a bit. Um, that that can help settle you down, too. Whit Merrifield made a phenomenal play, and Michael A. Taylor made a nice play. Two nice plays, really. Um, and then that eighth inning he threw, that that's the one that whenever he gets off track again, that's the one that you go to as... Cal Eldred, Mike Matheny, whoever, Salvador Perez, whoever wants to work with him. 
that's the inning you look at and you say, do this again, do this exactly <laughs> again, whatever you did there, just do it because he, he was perfect. I mean, it was, it was a great, the change up to Xander Bogarts was fantastic. Um, just, just really was, was putting the pitch pretty much where he wanted it. Um, I thought it was great. I, in hindsight, yeah, you probably pull him after that eighth inning because that's that's the best you'll be as a big leaguer at this point. Um, I get why Matheny put him out there for the ninth, and then he made a mistake. It wasn't like he was pitching; it, it was different than his two starts in that ninth inning when he gave up the home run. It was it was very much a hey, he made a mistake, and that happened. That happens to a big leaguer. Mike Miner yesterday, if you had pulled him after three innings, he would have had the same line that Coar did at the end of his start on or the end of his relief appearance on Saturday, minor gave up a two run homer. He made a mistake. He ended up throwing six and two thirds and gave up two runs. So I, I don't, I don't have a huge problem with, with the two runs allowed because it's look, you're a big league pitcher facing big league hitters. Um, I was pretty happy with that. I think, I think this is a role for him moving forward for the, for the time being, I, I'm not, you get him back in the rotation at some point, I think, but he clearly starting was overwhelming to him. Get him comfortable in the bullpen games. I mean, they're down, what was it? Five to one. I can't remember what the score was, but whatever it was, get him in there when the game's pretty much decided, um, give him a couple innings, give him a chance. I, I think once he has some success, I mean, that's when you can start talking about either higher leverage. Cause he has I mean, the fastball changeup in the bullpen would be dominant. Um, or get him back in the rotation or get, you know, as a bulk inning guy, whatever that be. I mean, if they want to start, I would I would be interested in giving Brent the first inning or two, and then bringing out Jackson Coar. Such a different look. I think that's a really good idea when you do something like that. So that that's something that I would definitely consider for him. But I think I think they're right to back off him a little bit and just see if he can kind of right the ship out of the bullpen for now. But you think he stays with the major league roster the rest of the season? Um, I don't know about the rest of the season, but at this point, yeah. Look, they don't have any other options with. Alano's now on the 60 day IL. He looks so good. That's disappointing. Um, kind of been overlooked, but that's really disappointing that he's, he's going to be out for a while. Um, who else is there? <laughs> you know, you can, you can say, Oh, they should, they should give Richard Lovelady a look. Sure. But I mean, does Wade Davis really belong on this roster anymore? So, I mean, there's a spot for, for Lovelady if you want to make that move. Um, I, I think at this point, yeah. Now, if they, if he keeps struggling and they somehow win, 14 of 16 and all of a sudden they're six games over 500 or whatever that would be. Don't, don't, don't do my math for me. Um, and, and they actually, that would be right. I'm very proud of myself. Um, <laughs> if, if they somehow do that and, and get to the or 20 games left and they go 16 and four through, through the, up to the all-star break. So there's six games over the break. I don't know. I, I think at that point you might, start to consider, well, Hey, we, we need wins and not development. So you got to go back to AAA to figure this out. But for the time being, yeah, I think it makes sense to have him out of the bullpen facing big league hitters. What's he going to learn in AAA? He had a 0.85 ERA or something with a ton of strikeouts, not a ton of walks, wasn't even a pitch. He, he's got to learn to pitch in the big leagues that that's what's left for him. So I, I think I'm good with him for now. And if the situation changes, then yeah, reevaluate. But for now, I think it makes sense. He is David Lesky. You can check out his work at Royals Review. Subscribe to his Substack, Inside the Crown. David, always a pleasure. Thank you again, sir. 
Absolutely. Thanks, Nick. Get your car washed because it's probably dirty right now. Whether it's you know washing all the germs out, you want to get obviously the germs out of your car, but also you want it to look really nice. Go to Tommy's Express Car Wash. It's wash, rinse, repeat with Tommy's. And guess what? They have an app. It's the Tommy Club app. So download it. I know you have a smartphone, so you're going to be able to download apps. You don't have a flip phone if you're listening to this podcast. I'm just assuming that. And if you do, more power to you. But if you do then you're missing out on this great deal. Because if you download the Tommy Club app today, you're going to enjoy endless washing for one low price. Endless washing for one low price at Tommy's Express Car Wash. That's unlimited car washes, unlimited clean, shiny, and dry, unlimited use of exclusive app lane at Tommy's, unlimited access to all the Tommy's locations, and there are a lot of them, unlimited guest service, most importantly, unlimited happiness. That's a Tommy's Express Car Wash. Two things that seem to confuse a lot of people, myself included, are legal proceedings and the inner workings of the NCAA. So when those two things come to a head, it becomes incredibly difficult to figure out exactly what the hell's going on. That's exactly what happened today. The headline would be that the Supreme Court has unanimously ruled against the NCAA in the case of the NCAA versus Alston. Now, what this actually means is not quite as simple. This is not going to end amateurism. And if you hear anybody saying that today, they're being disingenuous or they don't know what they're talking about. Amateurism is still very much alive and well in college basketball. And for those of us that would like to see the NCAA and college athletics move into the 21st century or maybe even the 20th century, this is not a total win. But it is going to reshape the way college athletics work. The NCAA is still going to be allowed to keep athletes from getting these impermissible benefits. What is changing is what exactly constitutes an impermissible benefit. And mostly the easiest way to to sort of track this is, is it related to education? Education related expenses. The NCAA is no longer allowed to prohibit schools from providing student-athletes these things, laptops, uh, academic awards, equipment, um, internships, things of that nature. That doesn't seem all that significant because it doesn't seem like it's going to be anything that's going to change the landscape of major college athletics. But here's why it's more than meets the eye when it comes to this specific ruling. First off, you would ask yourself, why is this even a thing? Why is this needing to be litigated? Why is the Supreme Court having to weigh in on that? Well, the simple answer is that the NCAA has dragged their feet. They have tried to avoid this conclusion at all costs, which has allowed this to sort of continue to get passed up the ladder to the point where it reaches the Supreme Court. What the NCAA has done to themselves, though, by allowing it to get to this point is It sort of opens up the gates for other possible lawsuits to come in against the NCAA. The Supreme Court ruled unanimously against the NCAA, and it was pretty harshly worded. Brett Kavanaugh, Justice Brett Kavanaugh, wrote in this decision, quote, The bottom line is that the NCAA and its member colleges are suppressing the pay of student-athletes who collectively generate billions of dollars in revenue for colleges every year. Those enormous sums of money flow to seemingly everyone except the student-athletes, college presidents, athletic directors, coaches, conference commissioners, and NCAA executives taking six- and seven-figure salaries 
Colleges build lavish new facilities, but the student-athletes who generate the revenues, many of whom are African-American and from lower-income backgrounds, end up with little or nothing. To be sure, the NCAA and its member colleges maintain important traditions that have become part of the fabric of America, but those traditions alone cannot justify the NCAA's decision to build a massive money-raising enterprise on the backs of student-athletes who are not fairly compensated. He goes on. It's very harshly worded. It lets you know exactly where they stand in the NCAA continuing to keep up this charade of amateurism. That's just one comment from one of the justices, Brett Kavanaugh. But the fact that he wrote that, if I'm Mark Emmert and I'm the NCAA, I'm listening to that statement, I'm reading that statement, and I'm saying we need to abandon ship now. Whatever legal strategy that we have sort of grasped onto up until this point is so clearly not working and is so clearly going to get worse for us if we continue to employ it. I mean, just take name, image, and likeness, for example. The NCAA has fought tooth and nail to keep that from becoming a widespread issue. And coming up on July 1st, certain states are going to have advantages over other states when a lot of the bills that have been passed in recent years are going to go into effect. California, Alabama, Florida, it's a lot of southern states, by the way, a lot of states in the southeast. So you can sort of draw the connections as to how that could play out if the NCAA doesn't step in with some sort of legislation or if uh, Congress doesn't pass something. And it's important to note that the NCAA is not above the law here. Nobody, Mark Gimmert and the NCAA included, wants to have government intervention to basically tell them how they can run their business. But that's exactly what's happened. I want to go back to this quote from Brett Kavanaugh. Nowhere else in America can businesses get away with agreeing not to pay their workers a fair market rate on the theory that their product is defined by not paying their workers a fair market rate. And under ordinary principles of antitrust law, it's not even evident why college sports should be any different. The NCAA is not above the law. What's going to happen the next time a lawsuit is presented to the Supreme Court? I just read you the quote. Nine to zero. The Supreme Court voted unanimously. And you just heard the quote from one of the voters, right? From one of the Supreme Court justices. What's going to happen when there's a lawsuit that comes across their desk alleging that the NCAA is breaking the law by not monetarily compensating these athletes. Set aside how you feel. You heard the quotes there. How do you think the Supreme Court is going to rule and say, you know what? These athletes deserve to be paid for 20, 30, 40 hours a week. Look at the money they're bringing in. Look at how they're compensated. Something needs to be done. How do you think the Supreme Court is going to rule then? And when that happens, how do you think that's going to change how college athletics operate and what it looks like? How do you think it's going to change all of the non-revenue sports at schools across the country? Because what is going to happen, again, regardless of what you think, should happen. What's going to happen 
is programs are going to get cut. They're not going to cut back on football. They're not going to cut back on basketball. But they're going to cut back on baseball. They'll cut back on volleyball, on track and field, on soccer, on tennis. It's going to happen. And there's nobody to blame but the NCAA. You have made this bed. You have stuck with this legal strategy for so long that now the Supreme Court is getting to decide what's going to happen next. As opposed to what would have happened had you had the foresight to see these sorts of things coming years ago and decided, you know what, it's probably going to be better if we play ball a little bit to avoid countless lawsuits because that's what's coming next. This lawsuit doesn't mean a whole lot. Athletes are going to get laptops. They're going to get equipment for classes. All right. This isn't going to all of a sudden open up pay for play. This isn't going to open up impermissible benefits from assistant coaches or apparel companies. But that could be next, right? That's the point. It's not that any of that stuff is now on the table. It's that you can clearly see how that may be coming down the pipeline. I want to read you one final quote from Brett Kavanaugh that may be the most damning for the NCAA. Quote, NCAA couches its argument for not paying student-athletes in innocuous labels, but the labels cannot disguise the reality. The NCAA's business model would be flatly illegal in almost any other industry in America. And if I'm somebody who decides that I feel like suing the NCAA, that line right there is going to make me feel pretty good about my chances if it makes it all the way to the Supreme Court again. I'm Nick Schwert. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk. So Mark Mangino appeared on a podcast last week, the Life of Fitz podcast. Tim Fitzgerald uh, is a writer for 24-7 Sports, GoPowerCat.com in uh, Manhattan. And he had Mark Mangino, who obviously has K-State ties, on his podcast last week. And in that conversation, I want to play a little clip here. The topic of potentially returning to coaching came up. Mangino hasn't been a coach since 2015 when he was the offensive coordinator at Iowa State. Before that, a little stint at Youngstown State. But it hasn't been fruitful anywhere since he returned to coaching after being fired from KU back in 2009. I've been under the belief for a while now that Mark Mangino is done coaching, which is not really hard to like reach that conclusion. He's uh, 64 years old. And it's a checkered past, to say the least. Here is what Mark Mangino had to say about the possibility of returning to coaching. There's some people who have dangled some bait in front of me, if that's what you mean. Uh, so far, I didn't clamp down on it. Now, I will tell you this. I'm not out looking for a coaching job. I am not. But if something fell in my lap or somebody called me and I thought it was a good opportunity I would seriously consider it. I still have a lot of energy. I have a lot of enthusiasm. I go visit college NFL teams all the time. I go help high school teams insert offenses and defenses and things like that. I'm in tune with the game. I know what the game's all about. Am I going to send out resumes? No. If somebody called me and said, Mark, we think that this might be a job that fits you and this is what we're willing to do. Now, it doesn't, I'm not talking about a top 20 job. No. 
but a program that fits you and this is what we can do to help them get better and everything. I'd consider it. I'd consider it. I don't see Mangino ever being a head coach in any capacity ever again, uh, but clearly uh, a, a talented offensive mind. I wonder, though, is he a guy who's going to fit at this stage of his career as a coordinator at Kansas? I think a big part of, of what he was able to do was going out and, and recruiting the, the right types of players, player development. Uh, as an offensive coordinator, like, is he that guy in 2021, the same guy he was in 2008? It's been a while, right? How much has he changed? Because we know the game has. But uh, Mangino, possibly returning to a sideline near you in the not-so-distant future. I'm not going to hold my breath. All right, I'm Nick Schwert. You're listening to Rock Shock Sports Talk. NBA Combine begins today in Chicago. Big news coming out earlier today from a Big 12 perspective. Matthew Meyer of Baylor, who some people projected to be a first-round pick. He got an invite to Chicago, but declined the invite. He is returning to Baylor next year. Now, I don't know exactly where Meyer is going to factor into the All-Big 12 type awards, Big 12 Player of the Year. He obviously came on really strong for Baylor at the end of the year in the NCAA tournament and with the departures of Davion Mitchell and Macy Teague and Jared Butler. like He is in line to be that guy for Baylor next year. So I think the opportunity is going to be there. It makes sense. That's why he would go back to all of a sudden be the alpha on what is once again expected to be you know, the top 25, top 15, top 10 team. I don't think Baylor is going to be a national championship contender. I mean, it's essentially Mayer, Adam Flagler, uh, Jonathan Chachwa-Chamwa, or Chamwa-Chachwa. I think I got that one backwards. But yeah, I, I don't know. But I, it makes sense for him. It makes sense for him. I, I don't know exactly where Baylor is going to be in the national picture. I would think on paper, they're going to be number two in the Big 12 behind Kansas. I think it's hard to make a case for anybody other than Kansas to be the preseason number one in the conference. The difficult thing about that is we don't really know exactly what Kansas is going to look like next year either because there are some guys who still have decisions to make. The big one being Ochai Abaji. I think Jalen Wilson's decision would be as impactful, but I don't know how many people are realistically expecting Jalen Wilson to keep his name in the draft. So that's why I sort of skim past that one when talking about Ochai. Ochai got the invite to the combine. He is going to perform this week. And I know a lot of people have been under the assumption that he's going to keep his name in the draft. You can go back to the press release when he announced he was going to uh, declare for the draft. And it did sound like a bit of a goodbye as opposed to Jalen Wilson's where it's like, hey, I just want to go get some feedback. That's all I'm really trying to do. Ochai has read more like, it's been fun. I, I'm thankful for all the memories and all the time, but I'm, I'm going to go pursue my dreams in the NBA. I don't think Ochai would get drafted if he keeps his name in the draft. I've said that several times. I'll say it again. I don't think he gets drafted. Um, there's a chance he's a, a late second round pick. There's a chance he shows out and, and has a really strong performance at the Combine. But I think what would have to happen this week in Chicago for Ochai to significantly raise his draft stock would be a really elite shooting performance because that is what he's going to get drafted on is the ability to shoot the ball at a high level. And we'll see what that looks like because I don't think he was really in the best position this past year without a true creator, not great floor spacing to get a lot of open shots. Maybe that changes 
uh, at the next level, playing next to a real point guard, playing next to some actual floor spacers. But the question that I think a lot of KU fans always ask is, would you have the opportunity to significantly raise your stock if you came back for another season? Well, in order to answer that question, you have to figure out what exactly your role is going to look like next year. It's easy to look at Ochai in the season he just had and say that, well, I mean, Marcus Garrett's going to be gone. You made a huge jump from one year to the next. You were the leading scorer on the team. You led the team in in shots per game. Like, you could go from being a 14-point-per-game guy to a 16, 17-point-per-game guy, and all of a sudden, maybe you're a fringe first-round pick. But are we sure that was what it would look like if Ochai came back? Remy Martin's going to join the team, and if he's not going to lead the team in shots, he's going to be second. Like, this is not a guy who's coming on to play a secondary role. And we can look at the season-long numbers for a guy like David McCormick and say, okay, you know, this guy's he's one of your dudes, but he's not the dude. But when the season progressed and by the time we got to the NCAA tournament, like he was one of your go-to guys. He was a guy you were running offense through. So there's a realistic chance that Ochai may not be the first option on next year's team. He may not be the second option on next year's team. Jesse Newell, the KC star, joined us last week, and he talked about just that. Ochai is a pretty... Um, it's kind of an open book with him, right? Like, we all know what he's good at, and we all know what he's really not so good at. But again, the question becomes whether the NBA teams want him to become better at the things that we know he's not good at. And specifically, I'm talking about ball handling and creating shots for himself. If he comes back to Kansas, will he be asked to do that this next year? Um, maybe a little bit, but he was asked to do that last year because he didn't have as many playmakers. But now they add Remy Martin. Now they add Joseph Yesifu, and you also have you know, potentially Jan Wilson back and David McCormick another year. So honestly, to me, it seems like if Ochai came back, he sort of becomes that piece I talked about that he could be at the next level, which is a very nice third or fourth best player on the floor, defends his position well, is athletic, stands in the corner, makes a bunch of threes, but also doesn't overextend himself offensively with other guys who can make plays on the floor. So it's sort of a tricky formula. And the other thing I don't think we can overlook here, and, and this happens in baseball all the time, a lot of times in baseball with the draft, you take the younger guy. I mean, there's more upside potential there. And you're also getting a guy, you know, closer to his peak and potentially have him an extra year. So you can't just overlook the fact that, hey, Ochai right now is a year younger than he will be in a year, no matter if he improves or not or, or gets better with his skill set or not. So all those factors are in play. And like I said before, it at least seems from the previous statements he's made and what he put on social media that he wants to give this a long look. And the fact that he may be in NBA Combine lets you know that there's at least some interest in the league as well, thinking that he could make that that jump if he wants to. So um, it's, it's a tricky answer, but I, I would honestly think that this Ochai Abaji, if he came back for a senior season, would be more closer to the sophomore year, where he was with Udoka as a rookie and Devon Dotson and kind of played third or fourth fiddle. Uh, closer to that than last year, where a lot of games, you know, he was having to step up and, and be the guy. And he didn't always seem comfortable in that role, but he did take a big leap forward last year when it came to efficiency and three-point shooting. So uh, not really a negative on his part, but like I said before, if he's the fourth or fifth best player on the NBA team, then uh, that's something I'm sure that a lot of pro teams would be happy with and a lot of things or something that I think a lot of pro teams would sign up for, just knowing, hey, this guy can hold down that spot and make others around him better. And that seems kind of like a perfect role for Ochai, whether that's in college or in the pro. The big question that I've had for the longest time about Ochai is, is he going to be able to develop a skill set that allows him to go out and get his own shot. That a lot of times separates the types of guys who float between the G League and the NBA or the guys who can play 15 minutes a game versus the guys who get kind of buried on the end of the bench. Then there's a razor's edge 
that separates them. You don't have to be James Harden or Kyrie Irving, but in the 10 to 15 minutes where you come in and play backup, can you go, can you go get a bucket or two? Or are you going to simply be somebody who benefits from the product of a well-run offense? Because if you're those types of guys, you're competing with a larger pool of candidates versus he can go create his own offense. Like we can sort of rely upon this guy a little bit. Is Ochai ever going to become that guy? I have my doubts, right? It's something you could work on. It's something I'm sure he'd be willing to bet on himself on, but I'm just not sure that that's going to be the case. When I talk to Sam Vecini, who covers the NBA and more specifically the NBA draft for the athletic, he sort of talked about the role that Ochai would need to play at the next level and why simply thinking that you have to develop that pull-up game or the ability to create your own shot maybe is asking a bit too much of a guy who doesn't really project to ever be that. At the NBA level, he won't be asked to really create his own shot, right? Like, that's just not going to be the role. His role is going to be 3 and D. He's going to have to knock down corner and wing jumpers, hopefully space the floor out to 27 feet and shoot, and then make quick decisions and play well within the construct of the offense. The problem that I have oftentimes with Ochai is that I have never felt like he processes the game all that quickly. There there are very few moments, it feels like, where he's making a quick decision Mm. and making a quick decision to shoot, unless it's like a set play for him. Like he's, um, like hold the ball for just that extra split second. Sometimes gets contests out there. And then as a passer, he doesn't really see the high level passes that are available to him. and that often just like kind of slows down and bogs down the offense a little bit. And then defensively, I think he's never really taken advantage of the athletic gifts that he very clearly has. Yeah. Like he's okay on defense. I, I was, I'm not saying he's a bad defender. He's not a bad defender, but he's never been a standout defensively either. And that's kind of what the role has to be. He has to make quick decisions. He has to be a legit positive on defense. And, Like, I'll be honest, like, I I like Marcus Garrett as a prospect. Like, I'll just be straight with that. Like, I, if I was an NBA team, I'd rather draft Marcus Garrett. So 3 and D, we hear it all the time. Like, it's kind of a cliche when talking about dudes, but that's probably Ochai's best bet is becoming a 3 and D guy at the next level. He shot 38% from three this past year. Like, there have been guys we've seen who were really good shooters at Kansas, but then got to the next level and it just didn't quite look the same. Ben McLemore has been serviceable. He's a journeyman, but he's still getting run. I mean, he got run on a really good Lakers team this past year. Uh, Xavier Henry. Xavier Henry was such a good shooter in college, but yet when he got to the next level, the shot didn't follow him. It's really difficult to sort of project who's going to be that guy that they were in college. I mean, Ochai puts up really impressive shooting numbers. Again, on a team that I don't think brought the best out of him. If you're going to be at any time, not even if you're a starter, but if you're coming off the bench and you're still the third or fourth option in whatever given lineup, what's that going to look like playing next to an NBA point guard, playing next to somebody else? Is he going to be a secondary ball handler or do you sort of play him as an undersized wing? The NBA is pretty fluid in terms of what positions you can play, but Ochai at six foot five sort of seems like he would be a two guard. Does that mean he has to develop the ability? to put the ball in the deck. There's just a lot of questions. There's a lot of questions, which is why I think it's difficult to sort of project him at the next level. So like myself, I sit here and I say, I don't think he's a great NBA pr- 
prospect, but there's also part of me that wonders if there's anything he can ever do to become a better NBA prospect or if he should just sort of capitalize on the fact that, hey, you averaged 14 points per game. You you took almost 12 shots per game for Kansas next year. If you come back for your senior season, those numbers are probably going down given the personnel that's going to be around you. Maybe the efficiency looks better. Maybe you look like more of a natural fit in the offense that KU runs with a guy like Remy Martin and Joe Yesifu and things sort of opening up for David McCormick down low. But the simple volume of shots and the amount of time that you get to have the ball in your hands is going to go down. Maybe that's not going to help you all that much. It's it's difficult to project. You know, when I was talking to Sam last week, he even brought up the fact that he actually, you heard it there at the, at the tail end of that, that answer, that he actually is higher on Marcus Garrett as a pro prospect than he is on Ochai Baji, which I have hardly seen anybody who has sort of felt that way or, or said anything about that. So this week is the NBA combine. Last week was the G League combine. They call it the G League Elite Camp. And Jonathan Gavoni of ESPN reported that the scrimmage that was held yesterday, Marcus Garrett missed it because of a minor injury suffered in a private team workout. He said, quote, he's in Chicago, has 20-plus team interviews scheduled. He'll attempt to play tomorrow. Should be one of the best defenders here. And that's going to be important for Garrett to get those reps if he does want to hear his name call, because I think the odds are against him of getting drafted as well. But like I said, Sam Bazzini, I mean, he's higher on him than he is Ochai. I asked him why. What is it about Marcus that makes you higher on him than a guy like Ochai? Here's what he said. Uh, just defense, decision-making. Uh, toughness, competitiveness, uh, a guy who knows what his role is and is willing to play into that role uh, consistently. I mean, Marcus Garrett was one of the five best defenders in college basketball for the last two years, right? And that will translate to the next level. He's not one of these, you know, six foot one, six foot two guards who are smaller and kind of will get bullied at the next level. He's six foot five and is strong and plays physically. Like he's going to be able to guard across the perimeter positions pretty easily because he's so big. He's a smart passer. He really processes the game at a high level. I think, uh, you know, the jump shot isn't there, but if there's one thing that NBA teams have always consistently felt like they can fix with their development trajectories and developmental uh, staff, it's the jump shot. And if I'm if I'm an NBA team, I'm going in, I'm thinking, look, literally all I have to do to make Marcus Garrett an NBA player is getting him to 35 to 37% from three. And he's improved a little bit over the course of his career. He's an 80% free throw shooter now. He shot 35 from three last year, even though he's not like super comfortable taking them, right? Um, like, I, I don't think anyone is going to sit here and say that even though he shot 35 from three last year, that we think that you know, Marcus Garrett, some high level shooter. Right. Yeah. Having said that, I just, I think there's enough room for growth there to where I feel comfortable, uh, trying to develop that skill. Uh, if I'm an NBA developmental staff bringing Marcus Garrett in. Well, we know Marcus is done with his college career, but as for Jalen, as for Ochai decisions still to be made and, uh, quickly approaching, that deadline date of July 7th for them to make their decisions on whether or not they're going to stay in the draft or come back to KU for another year. So I'd imagine by the end of this week, 
you know, you're going to have hear a lot of feedback. You're going to hear from teams. They're going to let you know uh, whether they're being truthful or not. They're going to let you know how they feel about you. Hey, if you're here, we'll take you. Hey, we're not we're not really feeling it this year, but you got two chances to be drafted, and then every team has a two-way deal as well. And if that's all it's going to take for Ochai, if he just wants the opportunity, like he cited in an interview with C.J. Moore last month, then maybe this isn't much of a decision to make because if it's a two-way deal, you probably get at least that much because you got enough going on for you, at least in that regard. All right, I'm Nick Schwartz. You're listening to Rock Shark Sports Talk.